You're listening to episode 140 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Well, hello, storytellers. August is a big month for us, and I have three announcements for you. First things first, we are officially back from hiatus with a brand new episode today. I hope y'all missed us. Second, we published our brand new feature article called Letting the Ghosts In by JC Cervantes, author of The Storm Runner, releasing this September. This is a beautiful and moving piece about the ups and downs and the heartbreaks you'll come across throughout your creative life. It's an absolute must-read for any of you who are struggling with self-doubt, wondering if you're good enough. This essay is like a warm blanket for your soul. And third, I hosted 88 Cups of Tea's first ever live event celebrating our three-year anniversary on August 8th in New York City, and it was exclusive to our community of listeners, podcast guests, and collaborators. I am so, so proud to fill you in that our champions at Overdrive's Libby and Scrivener sponsored the anniversary event to help me execute the party the way I had envisioned. Because of them, we were able to bring our community closer together and make fun new memories. I am so grateful and thrilled because these are two powerhouse companies that I've been such a fan of. And to know that they believe in 88 Cups of Tea as much as I do, it is an absolute dream come true. And I am so proud we also partnered with some of my favorite food brands, Fizzy Fox Shrub and Raka Virgin Chocolate to make the event even more special with their delicious organic sparkling tonics and sea salt chocolates. I am ridiculously excited to announce that we just published the recap of our three-year anniversary party written by Olivia Liu, one of our very own storytellers. The evening went beautifully, and it's kind of hard for me to explain verbally, which makes me even more excited to have this recap. Olivia poured her heart into a fantastic piece that lets you live vicariously through her experience and detailed perspective. This article also heavily features photos from the evening, and I have to thank my sister Melora Chang for brilliantly capturing the joy and the spirit of the evening and our community in general. And since we're on the topic of our three-year anniversary festivities, I have two additional related announcements. We're hosting a competition for our awesome giveaway prizes to continue our three-year anniversary festivities, so be sure to look out for those directions on our social media. And y'all have been asking for more 88 Cups of Tea merchandise, and guess what? We made a limited amount of 88 Cups of Tea tote bags specifically for our anniversary, and we have pop sockets. Look out for the link to our shop in our social media and you can find us anywhere on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. And now back to the feature article by JC Cervantes and 88 Cups of Tea's three-year anniversary event summary. I've linked those up in the summary section of whichever podcast player you're listening to right now. Now on to today's conversation, we have Gretchen McNeil on the show with us. Gretchen is the author of the young adult horror suspense novels Possess, 359, Relic, Get Even, Get Dirty, and 10. And she just released her most recent novel, Hashtag Murder Trending. In today's episode, we talk about how Gretchen applies and teaches Stanislavski's acting technique towards analyzing your manuscript 
and why it's important to write in the margins to find out your character's objective. We deep dive into Gretchen's latest novel, Hashtag Murder Trending, from idea to the process of writing it and how Gretchen uses Excel spreadsheets to stay on time with her writing deadlines. We also go into detail about what a relationship between an editor and an author looks like, how to choose the right literary agent for you, and she also walks us through querying advice. Towards the end of the episode, we feature listener questions like, does Gretchen have any tips for balancing the plot demands of suspense with character development? Does Gretchen have any tips for integrating breadcrumbs during drafting season, or is that something she works on in revisions? Did Gretchen pull from current social media apps and or create some new aspects for her own? And when it comes to horror, did she find mixing it with other genres make it easier to write? Now let's jump right in. How and when you first fell in love with storytelling, and then we go from there. Perfect. Well, I have a kind of windy road towards writing. But I like to define storytelling as more than just writing. In fact, when I do school visits, the first question I ask teens is how many of you are are storytellers? And like three kids raise their hand. And then we talk about what storytelling is. Is it just writing a book or a short story, poetry? Is it writing a script for a video game? Is it painting a picture? Is it uh, designing an outfit? And all of those to me are storytelling. And so then by the end, of course, half the room raises their hand. And I definitely did not fall into the writing as storytelling uh, category as a child or a teen or any of that. I was a performer, first and foremost, always. I did musical theater in high school. I went to UCLA and I got a degree in vocal performance. And then I have a master's in music and opera performance from the University of Maryland. So I pursued a an opera career and not a successful opera career, obviously, or I probably wouldn't be here talking about the books that I've written. Um, but that was my storytelling. My storytelling was on the stage with my voice, with my body. And I never wrote anything. Uh, I didn't keep a journal. I didn't write short stories. I was not that writer. Um, I know that that's a bit of an anachronism when it comes to authors, because most people I talked to started writing their first novel when they were six. And that was definitely not me. Um, But a few years ago, 10, 12, 12 years ago, I went through a divorce and I had stopped singing uh, just because I couldn't make a living at it. And I had been working in television production. I was uh, producing my soon to be ex-husband's television shows. I was doing some voiceover cartoon work and suddenly everything sort of evaporated. I didn't have the marriage. I didn't have the television work. I didn't have the singing career. And I woke him one day, as you do, and I said, I'm going to write a novel because that seems totally rational when you're, (laughs) you know, 30 something years old and clearly having a midlife midlife crisis. So um, I did. I wrote an adult romantic comedy that was neither romantic nor funny. (laughs) And I know. And um, uh, uh, it was horrible, especially looking back now, I can see how horrible it was. But what happened was I fell in love with storytelling as far as the written word goes. And as I have discovered, as my career has thankfully progressed, is that all of the training that I did all of those years, whether it was through dance or through uh, movement on stage, through singing in a foreign language, through conveying story through action in as, as in addition to words, I was doing this 
writing thing in a different way. It's all the same. The storytelling is all the same. So actually the writing came significantly easier probably than it should have for somebody with no writing experience or training whatsoever. Um, and, uh, I knew how to tell a story. I had to learn the trappings of writing, the trappings of fiction. Um, I had to learn how to get better because I was really horrible at it at first. Um, but I was in love with that aspect of storytelling enough that I wanted to put the work in. And so I wrote another manuscript and it was better. And I got an agent and I didn't get a publishing deal, but then I wrote another manuscript and it was better. And I got a publishing deal and that's how it all started. Oh, I love that. Okay. First of all, Cassie McGinty spoke very highly of you. Oh, in case our listeners have no idea what I'm talking about, Cassie, she is Gretchen's publicist uh, at Disney and a really sweet, awesome woman. And she was saying the best things about you. Like she's like, Yen, you have to talk to Gretchen. She has the best, funniest personality. Like you guys will click. And I completely understand right now because a lot of what you said, I completely resonate with just rewinding it all the way back to when you were saying you went to that classroom and you asked the kids who here is a storyteller. And those just like a few handful raised their hands, like two or three. Right. And I had the same exact kind of perspective because I came from a performing background as an actor. Ah. There we go. And that's why every single thing you said, I'm like, yes, preach, but I did not want to be rude and interrupt. So I was silently <laughs> preaching and nodding my head. That's fantastic. In my head, I was like, thank you for saying this, because for me, I'm trying to refocus some of my energy into writing. And then when mm-hmm. I don't do it, I have so much tremendous guilt. But then I have to remind myself, storyteller does not mean writing specifically. Absolutely. Yes. It, it's just an it art means form. So many mm-hmm. things. Yes. And, and to limit it to just the written word. And where does that end? Is storytelling only fiction? Is it only long form fiction or, you know, novels and short stories? Is it poetry? Is it exactly. poetry storytelling? Like, where do you draw the line in that? Is writing a script? Is writing a play? Is writing a script for a video game? I mean, all yes. of these things are telling a story. It's just that because we grew up you know, in an education system that preached, you know, stories, authors, books, and, you know, here's the books that you will read this semester. And, and those were authors who we didn't know. Those were authors who didn't have Twitter accounts because there was no Twitter, especially when I was a teenager and they didn't exist as humans. They were something mythical, something sort of godlike. And so this idea that we could become that was, completely foreign. I never, I mean, and what high school guidance counselor is going to be like, you know what you should do? You should drop everything and be a writer. Yeah. Don't go to college. Just write some books. Not that by the way, high school guidance counselors were like really opera seems like a really amazing choice. Good job, dear. But at least I have, you know, I went and got a degree in these things. So, you know, at least I had some educational fallback, but these aren't, these aren't acceptable career choices for young people. And I understand why, but it makes it feel unattainable, completely unattainable. Even with acting, I mean, we all grew up hearing the stories of actors who were discovered on the street, who were, you know, working a construction job. And someone was like, hey, can you fill in and do this line of something? And then suddenly they're Harrison Ford. You know, I mean, (laughs) we, we understand that you can come from nothing and make it as an actor. Um, but as far as writing fiction, especially, that wasn't a concept that uh, that I could have internalized. That's a really good point. It felt like you just knocked me out with something. <laughs>
Yeah. And so we don't see writing as the same thing. I mean, I'm look, I'm all for MFA programs. I myself have a master's in music for what that is worth. My, I wouldn't trade that time for anything. It was an amazing period of my life. I learned so much, not just about singing and performing, but about storytelling that I use now, you know, MFA programs are things that writers think they need in order to call themselves a writer. And it's just not true. Um, I'm not saying that everybody can sit down at a laptop and write, you know, an award-winning novel, um, but you can write a novel and then you can learn how to make it better. And that is the process that we all go through every time with every book anyway. So um, it's not something unattainable. I do believe that your storytelling does have a lot to do, like right now, specifically in the medium of writing. You're drawing a lot from your days as a storyteller through singing and musical theater that you're talking about, because I can guarantee you, I mean, overall, as performers, we are taught to be very empathetic and compassionate human beings to study and observe other humans and what makes us tick. And I can just imagine how much easier it is for you to access characters and to have empathy for their choices, even even for the bad guys. Of course. You're able to find empathy in in the way you approach that character. So you can kind of paint them in a way where it's understandable, where another person reading, it's like, oh, I can kind of understand why that choice was made. And it's almost like it isn't so black and white anymore. It just, you humanize things so much better. And that, I've, you know, I've thought a lot about this very specific point when it comes to my own writing and, and how I can do that. And what I realized was I was taking the techniques of acting specifically, and I teach this a lot when I, when I teach seminars and I teach classes, specifically the Stanislavski advanced questions. Any of you listening who have studied acting, um, Konstantin Stanislavski was a, is a, is a dead Russian actor and director who quantified this a program of teaching actors how to experience the role within themselves as in uh, instead of um, performing the role, right? So, you know, becoming Hamlet as opposed to performing Hamlet. And he did this through a series of, of questions. Um, and the important ones that you can bring into writing are, what do I want? Why do I want it? What is in my way? What do I do to get around it? And what is at stake if I fail? That's the objective, the motivation, the obstacle, the action, and the stakes. And you know that for every character in every scene at every time, and that includes your antagonist, you will be able to write a book. Because those are the things that human beings sort of internalize when we make choices and decisions based on a set of um, obstacles facing us or, uh, you know, an emotional conversation or whatever. We're, We're internalizing the answers to these questions all the time. Actors have to sit down and figure that out for their characters, opera singers too, um, And we have to do the same as authors. And if you do that, all of a sudden, um, you understand all of the characters in a way that perhaps you didn't when you were first sort of conceptualizing who was going to be in this book. I tell people like as if it's too much to think about while you're writing, after you finish a scene, a chapter, the entire manuscript, whatever it is, start writing in the margins, print it out. I'm a big mm. fan of unfortunately killing trees and printing out manuscripts, <laughs> yeah. but write in the margin. What does my character want here? Why are they making this choice? Like what is the motivation of them making this choice? As long as everything your characters do has a rationale that you are 
making clear to the reader, nobody is going to question, no one's going to have that moment where they want to throw your book across the room because your character just did something completely stupid. And we have to analyze our manuscripts in that way to make sure that our intent for all of our characters is coming through. And that's why I recommend like write it in the margin. And then when you go back and you do the next draft, you're like, okay, am I getting it clear that she's making this choice? Because I, I believe you can motivate a character to do anything. Like they can do something ridiculous and out of character, but as long as you're selling us on a true motivation, we're going to buy it. It's like notes in your sides for auditions. And you're, you're writing down all these questions. What is this objective? Why, why, why? And, and like, you write it in the margin of your script. They seem like they're taught as two so totally different things. I mean, the theater kids and the writing kids are not like hanging out at lunch usually. And um, uh, so they're not sort of cross pollinating um, their techniques or conversations about how to do this. But I, I swear it is the same thing. We're doing the same thing in a different medium. That was so helpful. And now I want to get into your book, Hashtag Murder Trending. Could you give us a snapshot of what hashtag murder trending is about that you'd love listeners to know? So imagine a world where a reality television star gets elected president. I know it never happened. Right. <laughs> we wished. Um, and he uh, he sells the criminal justice system to a reality television producer and together they turn San Francisco's Treasure Island into Alcatraz 2.0, which is an island prison where people who are convicted of capital crimes are sent to live in these little duplexes and work jobs on a fake main street. But the island is fitted with cameras everywhere. And what happens eventually is that uh, the criminals are hunted down by one of 10 thematic serial killers that populate the island, and their deaths are streamed live on an app for your phone or tablet. And it's a comedy, I swear. Um, and it's about a 17-year-old girl named Dee who is falsely convicted of killing her stepsister, sent to Alcatraz 2.0, and has to survive long enough to try and figure out who framed her and why. Um, there's a lot of political and social satire. It is very campy and it is very grisly. And those two things are intentional um, because I'm trying to kind of highlight, first of all, our obsession with reality television, our desensit uh, desensitization, mm-hmm. that is a long word, to violence. <laughs> um, yes. Watching something on a, on a four inch screen um, is not the same as watching something, uh, in person. And so we, we have this, um, this narrative distance really between ourselves and what would be happening in this app that people, um, uh, don't feel empathy towards the murders that they're watching. They view it as justice served. And so they, um, they have these uh, Reddit feeds and uh, Twitter comments that are part of the app. The app is called The Postman. And we see those in the book because everything in the island, uh, everything in the book takes place on the island. And so to be able to see public opinion and how it starts to shift based on what's happening on the island, I needed to insert these social media uh, pages, uh, which is interesting because you can see multiple sides. Uh, You can see the fans, you can see the followers, you can see the conspiracy theorists, you can see the people that are starting to question whether or not this is a good idea. Um, And uh, and I feel like it was important to see that in this context, because this is so 
over the top. And yet at the same time, what I felt and what I, what I see in a lot of reviews is I could see this potentially happening. Maybe, you know, it doesn't seem quite as far fetched. And, and as I said in an interview, I think it was with hypable, um, if I'd written this book in 2015, say, uh, it would have seemed ludicrous. It would have seemed like I was writing a book about 20 years in the future. It would have felt more like Hunger Games, more distant, more removed from our current everyday life. It doesn't feel like that in 2018. It feels like it could happen tomorrow or next month. And so um, while it's ridiculous, and it is ridiculous, I mean, these some of these serial killers are so over the top in a, in a wonderful way, I think, Um and what they do is, is grisly. Um, I want there to be this sense of, ah, ha, 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 that's so ridiculous, but actually, um, and I think there is some power in using the comedy and the horror, those genres together to make something of a point that makes you think it's not hitting you over the head with a political statement. It's not my, that's not my intent. Uh, it's definitely more of a, of a social statement. Mm, okay. It's kind of crazy because when you were talking about how it is a little bit more familiar right now because it's out in 2018, I was nodding my head again because I'm like thinking, hello, Handmaid's Tale. No one yes. thought at that time when Margaret Atwood yes. actually released it that this would be something that would be an issue at this time. And we've regressed because yes. of 45. And because this, this person is now our president, Unfortunately, all of these scenarios are a little bit too realistic and it's scary. Well, and, the, and the things that we would not have put up with from a world leader two years ago yes. now now seem permissible uh-huh. in a way that that I find um, it's so hypocritical. It's it's, tr- it's troubling at best. Yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> no, no. True. I completely agree with that. I love that you said there is so much desensitization. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yes, you um, did it much better than I did. <laughs> Try to say it in my head. I'm like, oh gosh, I hope I don't mess this so up. So many syllables. <laughs> right? So like there, you did mention there's so much desensitization in the, the news right now, seeing a lot of deaths. And I could not agree more. And it's scary because even myself, because I've seen so much on even Facebook, those viral videos of things happening, mm-hmm. it affects me so freaking much. It actually impacts my entire day where I almost feel like I can't move or get out of bed random days. For me to prevent that so that I can continue moving forward, I... You shut it out. Yes, I unfortunately shut it out. And that's scary because you don't want a whole bunch of people shutting down and ignoring the reality of what's happening because then they get away with murder. Exactly. exactly. That's the issue. That's how it happens. Was there something that happened that like a specific example where you're like, okay, I need to now write this book that then became murder trending. Well, the, the, the timing of this book was, was so fascinating. You know, I, I had pitched it and I'd been talking to Disney about it. Um, and we had this idea of, a uh, I know they, they call it hunger games meet scream Queens. To me, it's more the running man. Um, Less the Stephen King version and more the sort of ludicrous, over-the-top Arnold Schwarzenegger movie from, I think it was 1990, um, uh, which, you know, is so crazy in, in an amazing way. I mean, you know, Arnold in a unitard is is fun and the, the whole thing is ludicrous. But to me, it was these two things, this like, you know, gory comedy and this kind of over-the-top uh, social media thing. And uh, I got the offer on the book from them on Halloween 2016. What? I know, right? It's perfect timing. Um, right. And a week later, 
we had that election. It was right. one week later. And I had to write and deliver this book in February. And I had to, I mean, it was, uh, I, I don't, I tried to keep politics out of this. I mean, look, I'm, I am a left coast liberal. I grew up in San Francisco. I've lived in LA for 20 plus years. My politics mm-hmm. are pretty clear. Um, I was ill. I was ill for days after that election and, mm-hmm. um, and numb. And, and then I had to put myself back together and write this damn book. And that is when the presidential aspect arrived in the book. It wasn't actually in the initial pitch. Suddenly I was like, I can't write this book without making it about a president, a reality TV president. And he's never named in the book, but we know who I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. um, that he gets elected and this is what happens. And so that was therapeutic for me, but I had to turn the news off for the next three months to write this book. I couldn't I couldn't internalize, you know, what this would mean for our country um, between, you know, empowering neo-Nazis and, you know, what it meant for immigrants, when it meant for people who already felt marginalized by a lot of our society in places that are not as progressive as where I happen to live, um, what that would mean for the LGBTQ community, like all of those things. Like I couldn't live with it every day. Um, but what I could do was my own form of protest, which was put it in this book. Yes. Uh, and whether you agree with it or not, this book is going to be in print for a while. And this form of protest that I created will be out there. It will hopefully make people think maybe people on both sides of the aisle. I don't know. Um, but it, it like, I didn't go to the women's March the day after inauguration because I had a book due in a week and, um, and I hated not being there, but I kept reminding myself that this was my protest. Like this was, this was how I was going to, move forward with this and hopefully move other people forward with this. And this was my resistance. And so, um, yeah, I do notice a lot of people in my Facebook group. It was interesting. Some people who were not able to make it to protests, like those marches that you were talking about mm-hmm. were very much guilted into feeling like they were terrible people for not showing up uh, mm-hmm. when they were just not able to for whatever reason. Well, there's and, a million reasons, you know, exactly, like- exactly. For me at that time, because I wasn't working on anything else creatively that was adding to like my movement of contributing, I I personally, and this is just me personally, I felt more inclined to show up and go. But then for mm-hmm. others, like you, who said that this is your way of contribution to it. I absolutely stand by that. And I do think that's an important thing to mention. And I'm glad that you brought this up. Uh, I believe I've only had one conversation similar to this, like in nearly a um, 150 episode almost. So I am very happy you brought this up because I did notice a lot of people were getting a lot of crap for not showing up when they themselves said, like, I am working and contributing in my own way, whether that means making phone calls to offices, uh, yes. you know, creating beautiful merchandise and swag for the people going to the march to wear proudly. And they're like donating it. That's their way of showing, you know, whether it's resistance or showing that they want to make progress and movement forward rather than regressing. So just for anybody who's listening and has felt a little bit of shaming from 
their own friends where it's it is okay to do it in your way and whatever makes you feel good and whatever's authentic and true to you you know because some people they go to crowds they deal with anxiety you know some people actually have panic attacks and i mean we had seven hundred and fifty thousand people in downtown los angeles that day that's yes that's very overwhelming not for me but like for other people i can see where that would be like they can't handle that but as long as you are speaking up in some way, even if it's on a local level, you're speaking to your uncle who, who espouses perhaps some at Thanksgiving dinner. Exactly. You know, like, don't let it go unchallenged. Don't let it go unsaid. We're so used to like being polite and like, well, just let racist uncle Ed's comments go. Don't let him go, you know? And that's how, how you contribute. And it seems like a small thing, but it's not, uh, it's not a small thing to challenge somebody who is being racist or homophobic or misogynist or, you know, any other, uh, litany of ists out there that are, that should not be tolerated. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. Oh, I, oh, Gretchen, I really like you. <laughs> I like you too. <laughs> I want to also weave it now back to your writing as well uh, with murder trending. Now characters, because I know in the very beginning we were talking about how your storytelling background as a singer and a performer, a musical theater actor. Can you give us an example how that background tied in specifically with this book with discovering your characters? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of writers have very strong ideas of who their characters are before they ever sit down and write, Uh, whether that's, you know, they kind of spring fully formed into the writer's heads like a like a Mozart symphony. Um, He used to claim that he could hear all the parts at once and then he would just transcribe them, which whether true or not is completely crazy to me. But um, a lot of writers, I, I have writer friends that talk about that, like the characters just come to them and start talking to them and they understand who they are and then they put them into the context of a book. I work the opposite way. I work from a plot driven perspective first. And I get dinged for this sometimes. Sometimes people are like, there's not enough character development. In fairness, when the book takes place over two or three days and everybody is fighting for their life, character development is kind of at a at a frenetic pace. <laughs> so I have an idea usually of who my main character is, but I don't know all of her or him uh, until I start writing the book, until I start seeing how they interact with other characters, how they interact, uh, how they react to challenges, um, what works and doesn't work in the context of the plot. I have an idea that a character needs to go, you know, from A to B to C to D to F, you know, through the book. And if they have to make certain choices along the way, what gets them to those choices. So I'm sort of working backwards from Stanislavski. I'm, I'm looking at the plot and then I need to have my character be motivated to do these certain things along the way. So who do they need to be in order to make those types of decisions? You know, extroverts and introverts approach things very differently. Um, people who are judgmental versus people who are perceiving. I, I do a lot of Myers-Briggs with my characters, if you can't tell, which is another great tool because there's a bazillion websites about Myers-Briggs personalities on the internet. And they, um, they talk a lot about how like certain types react to problems. A lot of this is done for workplace stuff. I think Myers-Briggs was created as like a workplace tool. So you can see how, like how this person reacts to conflict, reacts to a problem in the workplace, same in fiction, right? How they react to a problem, how they react to conflict. Um, and so then I start to learn who the characters are. And then of course there's a balance. Most of my books have a kind of a set cast in this book. There's five in my book, 10, there were 10 to start with. And, um, 
personality types need to uh, be different. And sometimes they need to be personalities that butt heads. Excuse me, I'm burpy. Um, oh, no worries. I'm 25 weeks pregnant, so like I'm super burpy all the time. So like they need to have uh, conflicting personalities where um, where the, the way that they approach problems and conflict are completely diametrically opposed. And that creates a certain level of tension. Sometimes they need to be more harmonious in the way that they approach a problem. Um, and so that's how I start to develop who is especially the supporting cast, who these characters are. Um, there's a character in Murder Trending named Ethan, who is my favorite character in the book. And when you read the book, you will be able to tell that he is my favorite character because he's so much fun. Um, and I, I knew I needed the kind of like uh, tough guy. I needed a tough guy for this book because we have we have two guys in the book and one is sort of like an, an intellectual and I needed like a tough guy counterpart. And at one point... I decided that Ethan was going to speak in action movie quotes. And I don't know why this came to me. Like, you know, I'm in the shower, blow drying my hair or something. And I was like, you know what would be funny is if he quotes action movies all the time. So there are a ton of action movie quotes specifically. Like there's some some modern ones, but a lot from like the 80s and 90s, a lot of the classics because he's obsessed with them. He's obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is sort of my nod to the running man in this book. Um and his character really, once that piece was in place, all of a sudden I knew who he was. Um, he's the guy that wants to go get dressed up as commando when they go on a rescue mission, complete with like camo pants and like black makeup smudged under his eyes. You know, like he's that guy. And once I knew that, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I understand who Ethan is now. But that was, I was at least halfway through the draft of the book before I realized that. So that's something that then when I do the next pass, all of the characters begin to come to life more. Um, you know, even characters that are prickly are prickly for a reason. And by the time we've gotten to the end of the book, I've realized what that reason is. And so their prickliness now in the second draft is maybe a little more understandable or a little more palatable. Um, you know, I, I, I hate it when I have a, a character in 10 called Minnie and she gets a lot of flack from reviewers because they think she's horrible. Minnie has a lot of problems. And to me, her, her difficult personality traits were all justified and I understood them all. And so I, I get a little defensive um, when she's, when she's characterized as just being horrible. Again, that's where your performing background comes in with the empathy, yes, see empathy and compassion. Boom. I'm empathetic of all of them. You know, I wrote, I wrote, a two book series um, called the Don't Get Mad series and book one is called Get Even, book two is called Get Dirty. And it's about these four girls at a uh, Catholic school who have started this secret revenge society where they get back at bullies and mean girls and teachers who have victimized their weaker classmates. And they do this anonymously. Um, and in the second book, like it's easy to point to a bully and be like, you're a bully, you're guilty, and we're going to make you pay. In the second book, we see the fallout of that. We see one of the mean girls and what her life was like at home that made her into a mean girl. It's not black and white. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's probably, like you said, that's my, my natural empathy coming in where, where this character of Amber, um, or her name's not Amber. I forget what her name is. I've written so many books, so many characters, like I lose track. I mean, I love that you could actually keep track of at least the synopsis. Cause for me, I would be like, wait, what was that book about? You know, <laughs> so I'm know, impressed. And I'll do, I'll do school visits sometimes where the kids have just read one of my older books and they start asking me questions. And then I, <laughs> I have this panicked internal moment of, 
holy crap, do I remember what the hell they're talking about? And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. (laughs) Because it's not just that I have eight books out now, you know, so like, say if we're talking about 10, which was my second book, so there's six books. I've also written the sequel to Murder Trending, which I just finished copy edit. So that's a ninth book. I'm thinking about the 10th book now. So I'm so far removed, um, you know, spatially and emotionally from a book that I wrote in 2011 that it's hard to remember everybody's names. Um, you know, even the, there was a, I don't mean to totally name drop my own crap, but um, they- uh, Listen, they this is your platform right now. You can name drop whatever the heck you want to name drop. So please do. <laughs> they, um, they adapted 10 into a Lifetime original movie yes, last year. I was actually going to ask you that. Like, okay. I was going to ask you, like, what was that like for you? But sorry, before I interrupt right. you, but you can finish first. No, we can do that next. But I just wanted to say, like, I, I had a screening party for it. And I hadn't watched it before I had, like- 70 people show up to, to watch this at a, at a friend's, um, my friend, Katie Allender, who's also a Y author. I'm plugging her because she's wonderful, but she, her husband runs a production studio and we did the screening there and I'm sitting there watching this and I'm like, did that happen in the book? <laughs> and my friend, Caitlin, turns around, she's like, yeah, yeah, it's a lamp. It's a lamp in the book. I'm like, ah, oh, I thought it was like, I thought she hits him with like a vase or something. Like I had no, I, I couldn't even remember. Thank God someone else was like, no, Gretchen, that's what's in the book. I didn't even remember. <laughs> it was like, sure, I don't know. You're like creating words and you have to put even more energy to create the world and the characters and the words and string it all together and then do it again, multiple drafts. And for Christ's sake, I would have forgotten like what I wrote first draft if I'm up to draft one and a half. And so many of my books are standalones, which means each book is a new set of characters and new set of names, a new set of people. Um, I have to keep, I actually have a master spreadsheet of all my character names. Um, cause I try not to repeat them. I have repeated them upon a, the name Ben comes up a lot. I have no idea why. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I started a spreadsheet cause I was like, I gotta keep track of all these people. Like I, they, they can't all live in my head. It's not, it's not, there's not enough room up there. Um, so I keep a spreadsheet of all my character names and whether they're like main characters or secondary characters and what book they're in. That's actually very smart. Cause I'm like, I can imagine a lot of our listeners are like, Oh, great tip. And they're probably going to use it for themselves. So thank you for that. Yes. Use it. I, I encourage spreadsheets. I appreciate that so much. Uh, do you use spreadsheets for anything else when it comes to your writing? I use them for the actual writing of the first draft. And excuse um, me, what does that mean? I know. Like Excel? Um, so- Yes. What? So what happened was I had to write Get Dirty, which was the sequel to Get Even. They were originally going to be a year apart, but they're paperback originals. And the first book ended on such a huge cliffhanger that my publisher asked if we could move the book up three months so that they would be nine months apart. What this meant, though, was that I had to write the sequel in eight weeks. Now, I'm a fast writer. I, I come down on the faster side of things, but eight weeks and <laughs> I had no crazy. I basically, I knew who the killer was and I had no idea what else happened in the book. <laughs> and my husband and I decided that this, in the, in the midst of this, that, that would be a great time to look for a new apartment and move. Oh my God. So this was all happening at the same time. And I basically had to sit down and create a daily writing spreadsheet. I had to say, crank out 80,000 words in eight weeks. It's 10,000 words a week writing. I think I, I, I think I budgeted for six days a week 
And I was like, all right, well, that's however many words that is, 1,750 or whatever the heck it was. And I made a spreadsheet. So every day I would write in where I was at, like whatever word count I ended at, and it would calculate and let me know if I was ahead or behind schedule. (laughs) And I mean, I was pretty much behind schedule from like day four on, but I knew how much behind schedule I was so that when I got to the end and, you know, usually with a book, it's like the first part writes itself, the first act, the first 20 to 25,000 words, like, you know, what the setup is. So that that's exciting. And then you get to the middle of the book, which is when shit has to happen. And suddenly you're like, but I don't know what that shit is. And then you panic and don't know what's going to happen. And then by the time you work through that and you get to the third act to the end, now you're rolling. And so it's easy to like whip off, you know, three, 4,000 words in a day. And that's when you catch up if you're behind, but knowing where I was at, um, with that, uh, was the only way I was going to be able to get it done in time. And it worked so well that I have done it with all my other books. Um, and it, it just, it just keeps me accountable. I think it's very easy to procrastinate writing, um, because it feels ephemeral, you know, in some way it feels like this, um, you know, this magical thing that the the words just appear in my head when they're ready. And that, you know, that may be how a lot of people work, but if I just sat around and waited for the words to magically appear <laughs> in my head, I would never, ever write a manuscript. So I have to, I have to have a carrot. I need to have a little dangly carrot being like, you got to do your 1250 words today, Gretchen. And, and that helps me. And so, um, you know, and I know if I'm behind or, you know, stuff happens in life, uh, you get sick, you have to take a car to the shop, like whatever it is. And so sometimes you lose a day and then I'm like, all right, well, I'll, I, I lost say a thousand words and get a thousand words in today. So I'm going to break that up over the next two days and just write 500 extra a day. Um, and then I'll be back on track and, um, and I deliver books on time. That's, uh, uh, you know, and, and art isn't about, delivering on time necessarily. But when you're in publishing, there is this, the Venn diagram intersection of business and art is delivering your books on time. And, um, because it's not just me, uh, I've got editors who have a, a set amount of time carved out based on me delivering a manuscript on a date. You know, they're like, well, it's gonna take me three weeks to edit this. So, and she's turning it in on the first great. But if I don't turn it in till the 14th, they've got another book that's coming in on the 21st that they need to edit, you know, because they're putting their calendars together in that way. And so it's really and by the way, I have been late with books. I try to give my editors at least a month's notice and I've never been more than a week or two late. But that is because I work on this damn spreadsheet. and It really keeps me uh, accountable. And, you know, first drafts are not pretty. Um, no one publishes a first draft for a reason. Um, but once it's on the page, once the word, even if you've skipped a scene or written a bare bones action scene, cause you just don't have the energy to string it together at the time, but it's there. And then you can go in and fix it. And I find fixing the manuscript, doing that second draft is so much easier. Um, so that I, I need the carrot for the first draft. I don't need it beyond that. I'm, I'm, I'm engaged and ready beyond that. But that first draft, I need that spreadsheet to like, all right, Gretchen, we're going to sit down and do this today. You know, I need it. 
heard of that spreadsheet method before. Uh, I feel like you should trademark this or like write a self-help book. I share it with people freely. People ask me for it all the time. I email it to authors, especially authors who've maybe never had to deal with a really tight deadline and suddenly are faced with one because they know I've done this multiple times. I'll get emails and I'll be like, here it is. Have fun. But I'm, okay, so I'm not to add more to your plate because I just, I'm that type of person who loves to like brainstorm and like kick it with people and be like masterminding. So what, I mean, you probably think I'm nuts for even saying this, but what if you think of doing like a coffee table kind of book where you, so it's not like you have to like write too much about this, but you kind of almost insert examples and like uh, instructional manuals, but make it fun so that people can have that as a self-help book or craft book. Um, like I know it's not fiction, but it's completely different side, but it might be fun. Just like an idea to maybe put in the back burner, uh, down the road, because this really is a brilliant concept that I've never heard about. Um, and I feel like I could well, see people proudly rocking that on their coffee table if they're writers and putting, definitely put at least putting it on their bookshelves, you know, for craft writing and recommending it left and right. Publishers. If you're listening, yes, I am totally game to do this. <laughs> Send me an email. That's right. I mean, how cool would that be, right? I could totally see that. And I would totally buy that and recommend that left and right. So I just had to share that with you. If that opportunity ever comes across, like definitely pitch it or something, you know? Yes, um, and I will I will make sure that you are well credited. Oh my god, you're a so in that, in that final version. No need for any crediting whatsoever. As long as it's out and published, I'm so happy to rock it. You'll like be, I'm so you'll, proud. you'll get the dedication. You're there you so go. Sweet. Oh my gosh, you're I the promise. best. Okay, then girl, we gotta make this happen shit that'll be the only time i'll see my name on anything printed for a while now, now. there's motivation for it <laughs> okay you mentioned something about editors and what i find really interesting and fascinating and this is something i normally don't ask about because i've never had experience with editors so i you know it's not something from my own experience but listeners in our community have asked me to ask more authors about the process of working with an editor, what that's like and what to expect. Um, anything that you can share from your experience, just so that we have a lot of listeners who just got represented by agents and who are also in the process where their agents are submitting their their manuscript mm-hmm. uh, out there. And if there's anything that you can share, any advice that you can pass on to them uh, for of those who course. are complete newbies, I'd really appreciate it. You know, one of the questions I get asked a lot, either at events or when I teach from from my students, is how can you let somebody tell you what to do with your book? Um, Which is basically what happens in the editorial process. And I think the question itself comes from a place of fear. And I think you don't need to fear your editorial relationship. This is a collaboration. Yes, the book came from your head. You typed it, you wrote it, you created it, it's yours. But you need somebody to guide you towards making it better. Um, And I have been really, really lucky that I have worked with some amazing editors. I had um, Kristen Daly-Renz, who was my editor for seven books at Balzer and Bray for HarperCollins. And I have Kieran Viola and Eric Guerin at Disney Freeform, who have done uh, Murder Trending and, and the sequel, Murder Funding. And they ask difficult questions. They think of things that perhaps you didn't. It's not about misplaced commas 
and word repetition. I mean, you, you, you do get to that point in the manuscript, but at the beginning, that's not what it's about. It's about fine tuning character relationships. It's about pacing issues. It's about making sure that if you're writing a book that has to be both funny and tense, that the book is funny and tense, you know, like with my, with my first novel, that was a romantic comedy that was neither funny nor romantic. An editor would have helped me to make it both of those things. Um, and they do that usually by asking difficult questions. I have never had an editor say, do this, do this, do this. It's suggestions. It's like, here's, what's not working about this sequence, this character relationship, this person, whatever it is, what are some suggestions? What's some, you know, maybe, maybe we could try this. Maybe we could try this. And sometimes their suggestions are great. And sometimes their suggestions I don't love, but it inspires the thing that will work. Um, you talked about loving to sit down and brainstorm with people. That is essentially what the editorial process is. It is brainstorming with somebody who has done a lot of books that has have taken a lot of kind of raw first drafts and molded them into something that sparkles, you know, and I can't do that by myself. I'm a pretty savvy writer. I've written a lot of books at this point and I have been through the editorial process at, you know, major publishers for nine books now. I still write crappy first drafts. I still submit books that are not publishable yet. I still, you know, end up cutting 20,000 words out of a manuscript or 25 pages out of the first act because it's way too long. I am not infallible just because I've done this a few times. And some books are easier than others and some books come together better than others. But you need that guide along the way. So let them guide you. Um, usually I, I've never had an experience where an editor acquired a book and didn't love the book. They love the book and they want to create something that every reader will love too. And you do that together. Uh, it is a collaboration. No book is just a, a, an author. It is a village. It's, and it's not just your editors. There's copy editors. There's your marketing and publicity people. There's the cover designers. I mean, look at the cover for Murder Trending. Marcy Senders did an amazing job with this cover. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to be able to show people the cover for the sequel. It is outstanding. And then, of course, everybody on your agent side, everybody for me, I, my agent is Ginger Clark. I've been with her for almost 10 years. I trust her implicitly. And everybody who works for me at Curtis Brown, it is an entire team of people. And you have to trust them. You have to be able to lean on them. So I think sometimes it's hard for authors to get their head around this idea that it's not just them and the words on the page. But it does become more than that uh, when you sell the manuscript. What if there's a scenario where the writer really feels like there's a suggestion and not just like a tiny suggestion from the editor, but a very crucial, pivotal suggestion in the middle of the book uh, and kind of like completely turns the path and direction of where the writer initially envisioned. What if it's something that's so not what the writer feels is the right thing mm -hmm. in their gut and in their intuition from your experience what do you have like whether it's your experience or friends that you've met throughout the industry mm -hmm. what do they do there well we all pick a hill we want to die on <laughs> and i think i think every book has that hill we all have that hill it's like that's the one i'm dying on i think one of the important things i would recommend is getting on the phone 
Whenever I've had miscommunication issues with editors, it's because we had some kind of uh, tough timeline where we couldn't get a call scheduled because of, you know, everyone's, you know, because editors are like ridiculously busy. Um, I'm a busy person. I work other jobs in addition to writing. um, But like editors, their time is so impacted. And so sometimes just being able to schedule a call is really difficult. Um, If you can get on the phone and talk through the issue, I guarantee you, you will come to some common ground. Usually the suggestion from the editor is because something isn't working. Now it might not be the right suggestion for the author that may, or they may be interpreting that suggestion in a way that they think is going to completely radically change the rest of the book. And maybe that's not actually what the editor intends. And so getting on the phone and talk about it and saying, I'm trying to evoke X, Y, Z. And I feel like if we do that, that's gone. And the editor will say, Oh no, no, X, Y, Z is my favorite part of the book. What I'm worried about is this ABC issue. So how can we address that? Um, and that to me is really important. The communication stuff is really key. Um, you, you can't, you can't sit there and think, oh, they're just, they're dictatorial and this is what it's going to be. It's a process and no, both sides, I think, feel that way. And so the communicating about it, you will find common ground. You will figure out a way to address your editor's concerns without, Uh, radically shifting what you think is so important about the book in the first place. And look, your editor wouldn't have bought the book if they Mm. didn't love those things that you hold so dear. So uh, I I do believe that talking about it, um, not over email where tone can be uh, misinterpreted, uh, actually talking about it on the phone, if at all possible, is the absolute number one way to go. Backtrack a little bit and there have been questions I remember seeing in our Facebook group where I feel like a few of these people mentioned that, like, what happens when there's several editors approaching you saying, I want to represent your book, I want to work on it. And how how do you how you choose that person where you know that would be the right person? I know it's hard to kind of explain intuition. Yes. Uh, no, it, there are, there are actually some, some concrete things you can look at. And I haven't had this problem with uh, multiple editors offering before, but I have had this problem with multiple agents offering again, like my first book, nobody wanted cause it was horrible. And then I wrote this young adult novel and I had, um, I think it was a four or five, I can't remember, offers of representation that all came within like two weeks. And they were all from, most of them were from wonderful, reputable, amazing, stellar agents. Um, this was way, way back in, in the, the halcyon days of 2008. And um, uh, I sat down and the first thing that I had to overcome was the idea that I could make a mistake. I think that's really key to understanding. If you've got multiple agents who all have uh, clients who have sold books in your genre uh, to uh, big big publishers for good deals, et cetera, you can't make a wrong choice. Um, I also recommend speaking with uh, other clients who are repped by the agent. Sometimes some agents are super editorial, some are not. Some agents are quick to respond. Others take slower time. You want to know, you want to, you want to know if this is a, a communication style or an editorial style that you think you can handle. Do they share rejections? Do they, um, 
uh, do they share the submission lists or is that not part of their usual plan? And then just being able to be like, well, I'd, I'd really like to see who I'm on sub to. So maybe that agent and I wouldn't be a great fit. At the end of the day, though, you know, there is you're going to come up with it. I had I, had, I came down to three uh, and I was like, all three of them were amazing, still are amazing. Um, and two of them I had clicked with just like like we were chatting and joking on the phone. And I was like, we could all have drinks together. Um, and the third agent called me out of the blue without setting a phone, <laughs> a phone time because <laughs> She was, she was going to be out of the office. It was like on Thursday, she was going to be out of the office on Friday. And she said, I'm 50 pages away from the end. I want to throw my hat in the ring. Do you have any questions? And I was kind of like, I, I must have sounded like a babbling idiot on the phone. I'm surprised she still wanted to represent me after that <laughs> phone call. Um, but there was such a, a, like a succinct business-like approach to her. I am not like that. I am touchy-feely and... Let's talk and chat and joke and have a rapport. I need somebody on my team who is like a ballsy business person. And that is why I went with Ginger, um, because I felt that it complemented. It was a good compliment to my personality in that what I perhaps lacked as a professional business person was something that she brought to the table. Now, of course it turned out as I got to know her better that she has an amazing personality and we do go out and have drinks and laugh. And like, you know, like that's, that's been, you know, one of those wonderful sort of developments. Um, but I didn't know that at the time, at the time I was like, I need this kind of agent representing me. And, and Ginger came off the most like that in my opinion. Um, and that's why I went with her. And self-awareness is key. We have to be, as artists, we have to be self-aware of what we need. What I need is different than what another author needs. And, you know, I, I talk to a lot of authors who, who Ginger offers representation to, and, you know, I share my experiences, but it, it may not work for everybody. Like it's, there's just, you know, cause all of our personalities aren't the same. So being self-aware and knowing like, do you need somebody that's going to treat you with kit gloves? Like, is that what you need? If that's what you need, find that person. But, there, you know, we have to all kind of take a step back and be like, all right, what is going to like, am I going to be able to handle this really? Or am I tricking myself into believing that because I feel like it's the smart choice? And it's hard to be self-aware sometimes in the arts because we, there's like an intrinsic distrust of our feelings sometimes where we feel like we don't know, like, you know, I wasn't represented. I never had an agent before. I was like, how can I, how can I know what the right choice is? I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Um, but being a little bit self-aware about who I was and what would match my personality, I think is, is what made this choice one that worked out for the long term. Well, I'm so personally happy to hear that. And to know that also Me now too. you, yeah, heck yeah. Now that you and Ginger can grab drinks too, is like an extra cherry on top. So that's really cool. Stepping a little bit before that querying process, your experience, what can you share with our listeners who are going through the querying trenches right now? Well, first and foremost, uh, no one likes querying, right? No one likes writing a 200 to 250 word pitch of your book to put in the middle of a query letter. It sucks for everybody. So you are, you are all, you are all part of the common, you know, uh, uh, horror, horror that is querying. So accept it. 
<laughs> um, and, and don't let it scare you. I think the most important thing with queries is the respect factor. I cannot tell you how many stories I have heard from my agent, from other agents that are where they get a query that starts off with dear agent, not dear Miss Clark. You oh know, my gosh. Dear agent, you are the, yes, absolutely. You are the lucky recipient <gasps> of the query for my novel. You blah, blah. are joking me. Who oh, I on wish earth? I was joking. Who on I earth? wish, you oh. know, those people. You know, you know those people. Um, oh, and it's they think that they're sort of like generating excitement oh, Lord. by opening a letter like this. And all they're doing is making sure that the, the pitch part of their book is never even read. And that they end up on a list that age, of stories that agents tell each other over cocktails. Oh, um, my gosh. Uh, so, and you know, they'll get to, agents will get together and they'll be like, oh, my God, I got this query. And I got that query, too. I love so the query is very simple. There is an opening introduction. Dear Ms. Clark, I am seeking representation for my 70,000 word middle grade fantasy, insert title here, that will appeal to fans of X, Y, and Z authors. That's it. That's all you have to do to start. Ooh. And then the next paragraph or two is a pitch of your book. It is not a synopsis of your book. It is a pitch. Um, and what you need to get across in the pitch are those Stanislavski's questions I talked about earlier. You need to establish who the main character is, what they want, what's in their way, what they do to get around it. And most importantly in a query, what is at stake if they fail? You don't have to say what happens at the end. You want to tease the ending with the stakes being like, and if, you know, Harry fails to find the Sorcerer's Stone, you know, evil may rise again, right? That's all you have to do. You don't have to talk about the whole ending of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. You just have to let us know that if he doesn't accomplish this goal, something horrible is going to happen. Um, and that's your pitch. And then the last paragraph, if you have publishing credits, if you were... Um, uh, refer to the uh, agent by somebody. Um, if you have specialized knowledge, like if you're writing a book about paleontologists and you were a professional paleontologist for 20 years, put that in there, right? Because this is, you know, like a, I obviously have experience doing this thing that I'm writing about. And then all you have to do is say the completed manuscript is available upon request. Thank you for your time. End of story out the door. That's it. Because honestly, agents look at these things so quickly. They go word count, genre, title, and then they read the pitch. Anything else is superfluous. Um, and that's it. I mean, that's the art of querying. Getting a good pitch down is not as easy as that, of course. Um, it is an art form. Being able to pitch your book in 200 to 250 words or less is an art form. Um, but, you know, you you can run it by people. And, and I also recommend when you start querying, query like five agents to start with, not 30. <laughs> and see what the response is like from those five. If you get a great response rate of those agents asking to see chapters, then you have a good query. If you get five rejections, then perhaps the query itself needs to be tweaked. And now you haven't sort of carpet bombed 30 agents in the field. You've only reached out to five. And so you still got plenty of others to send a revamped query to. Oh, so good. Thank you for breaking that down and simplifying it. I think 
too many of the listeners in our community get so wrapped up and caught up and from nerves, you know, obviously, because yes. it's like oh, their God, first time doing course. this. It's so stressful. They end up like stressing themselves out. And then, like you said, it's like it, it could just be so simple. So, yes, I appreciate this because it's it's helping them emotionally and psychologically as well, where it's like, it's OK. It's not as Life and everybody has to do it. Yes. Every published author that yes. you've probably interviewed on this podcast has had to sit down at some point and write a damn query letter and felt like a fool, an idiot, and, uh, you know, a novice doing it. So we've all been there. Oh, so freaking helpful. I very much appreciate you for that. Now, do you mind if I could go into the listener questions real quick? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, go for it. Amazing. All right. So first of all, Elizabeth Penny wrote uh, from our Facebook group, no question, just want to say love her books, exclamation mark. And she put a heart emoji. And then next we have (laughs) Jessica James. Ah, so exciting. Exclamation mark. Does Gretchen have any tips for balancing the plot demands of suspense with character development? Yes, it's hard. Um, And, you know, you can't you can't expect to have the same level of character development from a quiet contemporary story as a tense uh, page turning lightning quick paced thriller, suspense, whatever. Um, it just doesn't happen the same way. Like I said, like, you know, whenever somebody dings me for character development, I'm like, well, it's kind of hard when you're running for your life for two days. You know, it's it's like, it's like with romance, like there's not a lot of romance in my book. It's kind of hard to fall in love when like somebody's coming at you with an ax. Um, but I think, uh, looking at how each situation changes each character right now, you know, if you're going to write a book where a lot of people die, as as happens in many of my books, uh, the ones that die first <laughs> are going to have less time to develop than others. Um, I try to get I try to get them a little bit more screen time up front because I know that they're about to bite it. Um, <laughs> so generous, but no, well, you know, you gotta, we got to know who they are so that their death has some meaning. Yes, um, but as the sort of suspense elements of the book add up and start to compact upon upon each other because you know everything that happens like changes your character a little bit changes them a little bit more it makes them do this it makes them do that um look at how that changes your character or how it could change your character if they go from someone who is shy and perhaps untrusting of their own instincts to becoming somebody that has to rely upon themselves you know someone who always looks to other people for advice uh, suddenly has to become the one that makes the decision so how do you get them from point a to point b um, and make sure that all the action all the plot elements are contributing towards that story arc of getting your character from emotionally where they start to emotionally where they end. Um, and then the two things go together and, and it, it seems sort of less uh, like separate things. They seem symbiotic, you know, the action and the emotional story. Mm, so good. Thank you for that. I'm sure Jessica is going to be very happy with that. Good luck, Jessica. <laughs> Thank you. You're so sweet. Okay. The next one we have is from Vanessa Andrew. She said, 
I've heard so many great things about hashtag murder trending exclamation mark. I can't wait to read it. Thrillers have always had breadcrumbs of information that move the plot forward and unwind or redirect the mystery within the story. Does Gretchen have any tips for integrating those breadcrumbs during drafting? Oh, I think she meant crafting during. Oh, no, no. During drafting season. Or is that something she works on in revisions? Both. Um, sometimes I, I refer to these as my red herrings, right? Um, uh, if you know who the killer is, um, you want to make sure that at some point that person is spotlighted as a, sus- a suspect and then dismissed as such, right? Um, and that there are other people who get the spotlight who seem like more desirable candidates. But you can't do that thing where the killer comes out of nowhere at the end. We have to show the killer, introduce them to the reader, and then have the main character, and then hopefully the reader as well, dismiss that person as a potential suspect. Um, So that when it comes back at the end, who the real killer was, it makes sense. Um, But also it's that I didn't see that twist coming moment, right? Um, And so you need a lot of red herrings in there. And some of them will sort of come up as you write. You're like, oh, what if I do this? And what if I make, you know, this person's initials or whatever. But a lot of it is after the first draft. A lot of it is when you get to the end of the first draft and you're like, okay, is it too obvious that, you know, this person is the killer? How do I obscure that um, in the draft? And then you start layering in, you know, uh, clues that lead to other people, uh, an alibi where the actual, you know, the killer presents some sort of alibi where they couldn't possibly have done it. Uh, and then figuring out how that they, how they would either manufacture the alibi or how they would get around it. Um, uh, modern technology is great for that. Uh, text messages and Snapchat and photos and all that kind of stuff can all be doctored, can all be, you know, but we take that stuff at face value. So you can use uh, things like that. But for me, it definitely, um, I would say most of that hard work, uh, comes in the revision process, not in the draft. Um, sometimes with the draft, I'm just trying to get, I'm just trying to get a story on the page. And then I'm like, all right, now we need to fix this. <laughs> the next we have Caitlin Duncan and Caitlin asked, hi. Well, first of all, she said, hi, Gretchen. Uh, hi, <laughs> she said, I'm so excited for your episode. 10 is my go-to recommendation for anyone looking for a young adult thriller. Congrats on your latest release. For hashtag murder trending, how did you go about creating the app for the story? Did you pull from current social media apps and or create some new aspects for your own? I'd love to hear your process. Thank you. And a heart emoji. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation, but anything else from the way she phrased it? Maybe you, you might have another thought. Yeah, I um, uh, this idea of calling it the postman um, kind of came from this idea of like not a um, U.S. Postal Service delivery, but post, posting posting things on the internet, like you know, a, a post. And so, um, there's actually a joke that uh, most people are not going to get in this book. Um, but when the app, when a, when a murder is about to go live on the app, there's a notification on your phone or device, and it's a double doorbell, which is a reference to the postman always rings twice. Um, which I, you know, again, like your average 13 year old's not going to know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, unless they come from a, 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 either a film buff or a theater background. <laughs> um, but, um, so I, 
I tried to make it as similar to some of the go-to social media apps that we have, uh, namely uh, Twitter and Reddit, where this idea of the, the, the nonstop comment feed, trending hashtags um, in, in the app, instead of liking a post or a video, they spike it. It's the same thing, right? Just, just a little bit more ominous and campy. Um, <laughs> but this idea that like the more spikes that the killers get for their videos, the more merchandise they sell, the more popular they are. There's some um, uh, revenue sharing that goes on. And so it keeps the, the, the killers, the executioners um, trying to up their game, you know, so that they don't get complacent in what they're doing and, and always trying to one up each other. But it's very much like based on what we would see on our phone or on our iPad um, with a video and like a comments feed running on a side. And I wanted it to feel not futuristic, but modern, like every day, like we could we could download that now. So it 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 feels like Twitter. It feels like Reddit, you know, even though they're not, but that's intention. And and they look like it too. And you see them in the book, they're intentionally designed, uh, in murder funding in the sequel, we use, um, closed Facebook groups and, uh, Instagram feeds. So we actually have, um, Instagram graphics, which was, I am not a graphic designer, <laughs> but, but, but recreating like an Instagram type feed was actually really fun. Um, like a visual aspect of it was, I had more fun with it than I thought. So, um, but yeah, I want it to feel like it's today, not like it's a, an app, you know, in the far flung future. The last and final question we have from Dean Bairn, and I hope I pronounced Dean's last name correctly. Uh, when it comes to horror, do you find mixing it with other genres makes it easier to write? An example, Scream being a meta coming of age horror, The Fly mm-hmm. being a body horror, that sort of thing. Yes. Um, you know, horror means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And if you were to go on Amazon right now and look up books in the horror category, you'd be like, really? Because <laughs> a lot of them probably are not super scary in, in one way or another. Horror to me is about tone and atmosphere, right? This book is, is gory, intentionally gory, but in an over the top campy way. Um, it's not like saw, it's not hostile. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's, blending genres of comedy and horror together to me, that's like the salty and the sweet, you know, they, they enhance each other. Um, but the beauty of horror is that you can bring that tone and that atmosphere into other genres. So you can have alien, which is a, you know, sci-fi horror. You can have the fly, like he said, body horror. You can have, um, uh, you know, the hacker, you can have the dream horror. you can have the serial killer at the summer camp, like all of those different types of, of things of genres can all become horror by adding that tone and that atmosphere. So in a way, you know, horror is kind of like an amalgam of different genres already. And if you go to horror section and you look at the classics, if you look at Barker and Koontz and King and all that, like it's across the board, you know, some have magic, some don't, some have sci-fi, some don't like it's already there. It's already built in because horror in itself doesn't just mean, 
you know, a madman with an ax. It doesn't just mean a ghost haunting. It, it is a, a feeling that can inhabit all of these paranormal and dystopian and sci-fi and all of those types of things. So I think make it easier to write. I'm not sure that's the right word for it, but it definitely allows for a broader spectrum of what can be horror. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So freaking good. Uh, Gretchen, you have been incredibly generous with your time and answering oh, no not only everybody's questions, but having this awesome conversation. I loved having you on. Well, I'm going to squeeze in one more. And like I mentioned earlier, what? how was it with 10 being a lifetime? <laughs> like, did you have a blast? Oh, it was so crazy. I mean, you know... <laughs> You write a book and I'd say, I, I know very few authors that will tell you that when they're writing a book, they're not seeing it happening like it's playing on a movie screen. I think that's just kind of in the 21st century with our infusion of media, television, film, plays, visual arts, etc. I think it's impossible to, to not see your story playing out as if it was on a big screen in front of you. So I think we all sort of do that. Um, and look, books get optioned all the time. And I am not poo-pooing options. I think every author needs to celebrate the option when it comes because it basically it means that somebody who is a professional storyteller thinks that your book is awesome and we should all celebrate that. But options are also kind of a dime a dozen. And 10 had been optioned once or twice before this one and nothing had come of them. I currently have all but two of my books under option, right? Well, 10 doesn't count. So all the others have <laughs> all but two under option. And will anything ever come of them? Who knows? Like I have, I have no control over that. I have no idea. Um, usually, uh, because I, I do come from somewhat of a film television background. Um, it takes, somebody driving that bus. It takes a director who is passionate about getting it made. It takes an actor who's passionate about getting it made, a producer, whatever it is. Somebody's got to drive the bus um, in order to get things done in, in the entertainment industry. So once you do your option and you get your check and you sign your contract, like celebrate it and then forget about it because that's exactly what I did with this. <laughs> it was like, great, this producer director found my book at a bookstore and read it and wants to make a movie. Okay, sure. Sign the option. Promptly forgot about it. Um, like a year later or something like that, get a phone call from my film rights agent saying they have a deal in place with lifetime and they need to buy the rights now. And I was like, huh? <laughs> Cause I totally forgotten that this even was on the table. Um, and from then, you know, like, once they have funding lined up and they have a script and then they cast it and then like all of a sudden they're filming it in upstate New York in the middle of winter. And like, uh, you know, and, and you have these moments of why me, why my book? I am not deserving of this. There are other books that are much more deserving of this. And the reality is that, you know, everybody who publishes a book deserves to have it turned into a TV show or a movie, but it's just not possible. Um, 
And I feel so incredibly grateful to Chris Robert and to Rainmaker Films and to uh, China Ann McLean, who started it and produced it uh, and has been such a huge advocate for both the film and the book um, that they loved it. Like, I, I, I can't. If teens ask all the time because they don't know. They'll be like, well, are you going to make a movie of it? And I say, do you have five million dollars to give me? Because if so, I will make a movie of it. Um, but that's what it takes. It takes like the passion and the hard work and the financial investment of of a bunch of people. It's not something that I, the author, can make happen. Um, and so I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I had a lot of like guilt somehow that I didn't deserve this. Um I am not ashamed to admit that I got pretty drunk at the viewing party because I was so uncomfortable <laughs> watching it. Like, not that it was bad. I thought it was wonderful. I thought these young actors gave amazing performances. And um, I was just like, I was like, I don't deserve this, you know? And so like, <laughs> I drank way too much wine. Um, but um, it, 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 at the end, this could never happen to me. I mean, odds are good that I will never have another property turned into uh, a TV show or a movie or whatever. But it happened to me once, and I will live with that joy uh, forever. And that's that's the long and the short of it. That's amazing. I well, I hope that it also happens to Murder Trending because it feels so cinematic. Well, it's been optioned by ABC Signature, so well, we see. Damn, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's a big deal. And I know like you were just explaining. Yes. Yes, about option, but <laughs> yes. still, again, celebrate it. That's amazing. And that reminds celebrate me. Celebrate it and then forget about it. <laughs> I mean, that's incredible. That really is. And congratulations on that. And I, I hope it goes through because I really see it on screen. It would be so much fun to watch. I'm I'm excited for you either way. And that's scarring, scarring children since <laughs> 2011. <laughs> it's awesome. And OK, now the last two questions. What yes. is a recommended book that you have specifically craft book? Because I'm very curious. I know that you said you never mm. had any writing background. You were a performer before and then you threw yourself in writing. I wonder if there was a craft book that you kind of used almost like a, a writer's Bible that helped you yes. in any way. Oh, God, yes. Uh, it's called Self-Editing for Fiction Writers by Brown, with an E at the end, and King. Um, I love that book. I actually lost my initial copy of it where it was all underlined in like this purple pen that I was really big on using. I had to buy another. I think I lent it to somebody and I had to buy another one. Uh, I use it as a refresher course every now and then. I'm like, let's just sit down and look at it. And it's really about all the different aspects of writing and the pitfalls that we fall into, you know, between adverbs and creative dialogue tags and pacing and superfluous word use and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's meant as a guide for when you finish a first draft and you sit down and make it, make it better. Um, but I feel like it can be used to help you improve your writing for the first draft as well. And so mm. I, I love that book and I recommend it all the time. Oh, I love that. Thank you. That's going to be in your show notes page um, up in the awesome. resources link. And now last and final question, where can everyone find you and follow you? I am on the Facebook. Uh, <laughs> the Facebook. Facebook. The Facebook. <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, facebook.com slash author Gretchen McNeil. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Gretchen McNeil. And then just to really confuse people, on Instagram, I am Gretchen underscore McNeil. <laughs> because someone had already taken Gretchen McNeil by the time I got around to Instagram. Um, 
but I am on all of those places and I do, I do check them frequently. So, and I love interacting with people. So. Oh my God, Gretchen, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Ian. This was so fun. And that wraps up our episode with Gretchen McNeil. Gretchen, thank you so much for your time and for sharing such a goldmine of information for our community. I loved getting to talk with you. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to say hi to Gretchen on Twitter at Gretchen McNeil. Don't forget to check out JC Cervantes's beautifully written article and Olivia Liu's 88 Cups of Tea three-year anniversary recap along with Melora Chang's photos. I included those links in the summary section of the podcast player you're listening to right now. You can find 88 Cups of Tea on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. Come say hi and write a review about us at Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. From what I hear, the more listeners we have subscribed and who write a review, the better it is for us to reach new listeners, which is so helpful for the show for anyone who's looking for inspiration. If you'd love to gift a financial contribution to keep this show going strong, head over to 88cupsofteacom slash support. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.